WCHD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. Oh, uh, do we know any more about UFOs and flying saucers today than we did in 1961? Has anyone changed, or has anyone, has anything <laughs> changed since the alleged abduction of Betty and Barney Hill 50 years ago? And most of all, how much can, how much control do we really have over our own planet? You've changed for the very much for the better, Ben, over the last 50 years. Oh, thank you. Greetings, friends, and welcome once again to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Officially, at least, this is our 266th broadcast, and a very special one it is. I'm Paul, and opening the show today was my son, co-host, and partner in the paranormal, Ben. Doesn't sound as good, because it usually it's like there's like three Ps, partner right. in the paranormal, Paul, or whatever. Right, whatever. Hello, I'm Ben. And it's hard to believe that it's been over two years since our good friend, nuclear physicist, lecturer Stanton Friedman, Stanton T. Friedman, has been with us on Behind the Paranormal, but he's with us this evening. Stan received his BSc and MSc degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist by such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics and McDonnell Douglas, <clears throat> working in such highly advanced, classified, and eventually canceled programs as nuclear aircraft fission and fusion rockets and various compact nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. Stan became interested in UFOs in 1958, and since 1967 has lectured about them at more than 600 colleges and 100 professional groups in 50 U.S. states, 10 Canadian provinces, and 18 other countries, in addition to various nuclear consulting efforts. He has published more than 90 UFO papers and has appeared on hundreds of radio and television programs, including Larry King Live in 07 and Twice in 08 and many documentaries. He is the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident and co-authored Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident, Top Secret Magic, his controversial book about the Majestic Majestic 12 group, was published in 1996 and went through six printings. An expanded edition was published in 2005. He is co-author with Kathleen Martin, Betty Hill's niece, and the guest on our August 22nd Boston Providence show, of a book in 2007, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Stan's book, Flying Saucers and Science, was published in June 08 and is in its third printing already. His newest book, also co-authored with Kathleen Martin, was Science is Wrong, released in June 2010. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings and appeared twice at the United Nations. Stan was presented with a Lifetime UFO Achievement Award in Leeds, England in 2002 by UFO Magazine of the UK. His website is stantonfriedman.com, www.stantonfriedman.com. Stanton Friedman, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. I can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> yeah, I can't I've been either. so darn busy. You know, that's what Exactly. It is. And I wanted to thank you for rushing back from wherever you were <laughs> by plane to be on the show tonight. Sault St. Marie, Michigan. Oh, Sault St. Marie. Okay. Well, we, we talked. Uh, I, actually, uh, we'll get into this later, but you, we uh, communicated with each other when you were in Toronto this afternoon. And we have a very, rather interesting letter from a very interesting person, which we'll get into. But in the meantime, Ben is going to start our questions for the uh, better part of the show. Here, so. All right, Stan. I have a question I've always wanted to ask you, but I always forgot to ask it until now. I don't mean any disrespect by saying this. I, I, it's just been on my mind forever. 
how do you get away with the things you say? I mean, do government people come knocking on your door or <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I had somebody call me and say, how come you're still alive, Stan? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan essentially asked the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, anybody who's listened to me and uh, one of my lectures and stuff knows that I have a, a deep respect for national security that I don't go off half-cocked saying all kinds of crazy things. I do not believe, as some do, that everything we know should be put on the table, disclose everything. There is a legitimate national security interest here. Uh, and we don't normally go around sharing what we learn about advanced technology with others unless they're sharing what they know, which they certainly are not. So I also... I'm very careful not to break the law by soliciting classified material uh, for which I don't have a need to know from people who do have a need to know. I'm not saying I'd throw it away if somebody sent it to me, but I am, I am not asking people to commit treason. And so uh, I get away with it, A, because I say the same thing in private, in private as I do in public, uh, and B, because I think I may be doing exactly what they want done, that is getting the public uh, ready for some kind of disclosure, you know, getting people away from the notion of this is crazy stuff. And uh, I get a lot of people telling me they're so glad that I appear on shows like yours, on Coast to Coast and other ones. Uh, they like my approach to things. Uh, I get this all the time. I, I, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but television is a very powerful medium, uh, you know, and, and so are motion pictures. And, you know, I've written several books, but uh, people, more people watch television than watch movies than read the books. So I, I think that from the comments I get from people, wherever I go, I mean, this is crazy. Here I am. I had my 77th birthday, uh, July 29th. Happy birthday. Two weeks, uh, thank you. Two weeks ago, yes. roughly. Okay, this year I have participated in conferences in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, in Warsaw, Poland, near Sao Paulo, Brazil, in St. John's, Newfoundland, in uh, Irvine, California, in Roswell, New Mexico, in Phoenix, Arizona, in Lawrence, Kansas, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, just in Michigan, uh, I'm busier than a bee, and what I find, no matter where I went, including Saudi Arabia and Warsaw and Sao Paulo, is people are telling me they see me on television. And, you know, I must have a strange face or something. They remember the face. I'm not sure they always remember the name. But, you know, they, they tell me they watch me all the time on the tube. Now, I must say, living in Canada, as I do, that we don't get all the U.S., History Channel programs, for example. And so people tell me they saw me on the tube the other day, and didn't you see it? No, I didn't see it. Nobody told me about it. And I probably did the interview two years ago anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm keeping busy. I find that there is enormous interest, and I'm very pleased about that. And serious interest. And not just because they buy my books, uh, but because of the questions that they ask. Uh People ask sensible questions indicating they've been wondering about this subject in a sensible kind of way. And so they look to me to 
give a hard time to the nasty, noisy, negativists, the naysaying newsmen, the fossilized physicists, as I call them. <laughs> uh, well, you know, somebody has to carry the, the flag, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I guess I've been elected. And also, you know, because I'm my own boss, I don't need to please anybody but me. I don't worry about losing tenure at some university if I say that uh, SETI, S-E-T-I, really stands for Silly Effort to Investigate, which it does. Uh, so I take on the astronomers and the SETI cultists, as I've called them, and I don't need to worry about it. You know, don't, don't, don't say anything too strong because somebody might be unhappy. I've done debates with people. I'm fearless in that sense. Uh, and incidentally, uh, I've made a number, I used to drive all the time from Albuquerque to Roswell. It's 200 miles of nothing. And if somebody wanted to take me out, my answering service always had my detailed itinerary. And they're under instructions, tell people where I'll be, when, what hotel, et cetera, et cetera. And boy, you want to stretch a road where you could take somebody out without anybody knowing it. It's <laughs> sure from, from Albuquerque yeah. to Roswell. <laughs> Well, we're glad you're still with us. So, uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, so Stan, let's let's uh, talk about let's move on from that. And um, so, what do we know, or do we know any more about flying saucers now than we did when the fe- first when the field first got started? We know a great deal more, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, and it's not just because of freedom of information, but because an awful lot of people have worked very hard to collect, review, evaluate, publish data, facts, solid information. And <laughs> it's kind of appropriate, I guess. I'm right in the middle of writing a column about an article in the June issue of Air Force magazine by a guy who was the editor of the magazine for 18 years and now is a contributing editor. And Air Force speaks out, and he gets everything wrong. They must be worried. He can't get his facts straight about anything, whether it's Blue Book or the Condon Report or uh, Roswell or, uh, you know. So I I do this kind of thing. What we know, for example, you wouldn't know it from reading his article, of course. Uh, We know that the latest explanation for Roswell, uh, Annie Jacobson's crazy Martian uh, War of the World simulated event to cause panic in the United States it's total malarkey. We know, uh, and a very important thing that we know that we didn't know back a long time ago, what is the statement made by Air Force General Carol Bolander, C-A-R-R-O-L-L. And Bolander was an Air Force general who was working on the lunar excursion module. And when, once we landed on the moon, he didn't have to work 12-hour days, as he told me when I talked to him about it. 10 years after he wrote this memo, he was given the job of what should we do, figuring out what we should do, we, the Air Force, should do about Project Blue Book, because the Condon people had recommended early in 1969 that it hasn't contributed anything to science, which I would say is probably true, uh, and what should we do about it? And so Bolander was given this assignment, no previous involvement, and he made the following statement. His memo resulted in the closure of Project Blue Book. This is in October. Of, and the closure act physically happened in uh, December of 69. 
He said, reports of UFOs, which could affect national security, are made in accordance with Joint Army-Navy Air Force Publication 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system, which is an astonishing statement. But he went on two paragraphs later. He says, if the government closes Project Blue Book, the public won't have a government office to which they can report UFO sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures established for that purpose. Now, that's an astonishing statement. I managed to locate him. He's dead now, unfortunately. I don't know how to reach him now, but some people don't. Maybe we could help you with that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, there are paranormal conduits that are in Yon, I guess. right. I talked to him, and he was quite decent on the phone. And I said, it sounds like you're saying there were two separate channels for UFO reports. So I'm going to have to stop you there, Stan. I'm awfully sorry, but we have to take a break. So okay. we'll be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com, with our guest, Stanton Friedman. Stay with us. CBS Radio's The New Sky. NewSkyRadio.com. This is The Lisa J. Smith Show. Hi, this is Lisa J. Join me for Lisa J. Now at 3 o'clock Eastern on CBS Radio The Sky. I'm bringing to you some great guests, numerologists, angel card readings, and more. That's at 3 o'clock Eastern on CBS The Sky. Look up to the sky. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Reach out. New Sky.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New SkyRadio.com. And we are back after the announcement by the fellow whom I'm sure Stan will agree sounds suspiciously like Nick Pope. I always thought. Anyway, Stan, you were telling us before the break uh, about the what was happening with Blue Book or uh, and the uh, the Bolander memo. Yes, yeah, the Bolander memo. Please continue. Well, yeah, and it, it was a shocking revelation. Uh, Bob uh, Todd, who is no longer with us, uh, had this was in a pile of uh, Freedom of Information Act request stuff that he got, and he published some of it uh, and. When we finally got hold of it, I talked to General Bolander, and I said to him, it sounds like you're talking about two separate reporting channels, one for stuff that affects national security and one for everything else. And he said, yes. And we agreed that one way, uh, you know, I, I've had reports of saucers that went down the runway at an Air Force base, Strategic <laughs> Air Command base, where, where nuclear weapons were stored. And we agreed that would be a national security problem. If we all go outside right now and uh, watch a saucer go by, or three of them or whatever, that's not a national security problem. It happens all the time. And it doesn't involve data obtained by uh, classified capability, you know, uh, fancy radar and spy satellites and all this kind of stuff. So uh, what, what this does is put the lie to the statement that the Air Force has been making since 1969 that they have no interest in UFOs, and there is no national security concern about it. What he said, basically, was, uh, you know, there is a national security concern. As a matter of fact, if you look at the instructions given to pilots of our most sophisticated aircraft, you know, the F-16, F-17, F-117, and a whole bunch of these things, you will find instructions for them to report anything strange that they see, including an unidentified surface ship, an unidentified submarine, an unidentified aircraft, or an unidentified flying object. That's recent. Uh, in other words, they've been lying through their teeth, and that should be no surprise. I still, every time I read it, it still makes me angry. One of the things that really drove me into this field was finding a copy of the biggest study ever done for the Air Force. Project Blue Book, Special Report 14, uh, at the University of California, Berkeley Library, way back in about 1960. And I was totally shocked, A, that it hadn't been mentioned in any of the 15 books that I had read, how come, and B, that it had over 240 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. Uh, I'm a data hound, and boy, there was data. And C, that the Secretary of the Air Force... We're not talking about some clerk. We're talking about the Secretary of the Air Force, Donald Quarles, made a totally false statement in the press release that accompanied this. Uh, he said, uh, on the basis of this report, they didn't give the title of the report, Blue Book Special Report 14, and somebody surely would have said, hey, what happened to 1 through 13? They would have been listed as classified if anybody had answered the question. Anyway, what Quarles said was, on the basis of this report, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. I am sure that even the unknown 3% who 
could have been list, uh, identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available, unquote. That sounds very straightforward, but it's a total and complete lie. That is, the unknowns weren't 3%, they were 21.5%. That's not a rounding off error. They were completely separate from the cases for which there was insufficient information. It was a separate category for them. That was another 9.3%. So where does the Secretary of the Air Force get off lying through his teeth? It was quoted all over the place, and apparently nobody asked who did the work, where was the work done, what was the title of the report, or anything like that. The work was done at Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, very well-respected re uh, research and development company. They looked at 3,201 sightings, for goodness sakes. They did a quality evaluation. They found the better the quality, the more likely to be unidentifiable. So when, when you get data like that, which seems to be unknown to all the nasty, noisy negativists, this study never gets discussed by the 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 nasty noisy negativist. Yeah. Uh don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. We're ready to do and, that all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. Ben's got a question here about how you got started. Or what what exactly convinced yeah. yeah. Good. Okay. Well you basically said well, the question. Uh what exactly convinced you that at least some UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft? Well, yeah, looking, as opposed at, the, you know, looking at the best cases in all these studies, look at the congressional testimony of 1968 by Dr. James E. McDonald. 41 outstanding cases, multiple witness radar visuals cases, uh, sightings by pilots, uh, sightings over big cities, uh, the work of Ted Phillips, who's looked at more than 4,000 physical trace cases. When you start looking at these, even if you look at Alan Hynek's book, uh, the UFO experience. Uh, if you look at the UFO evidence by Richard Hall, which has data on 4,500 cases, of which eight, about 745 were uh, unexplainable, uh, you know, it's just a huge amount of data. And we start reading the accounts from scientists, I, I just couldn't avoid the conclusion that son of a gun. Remember, the question we're asking is not what are UFOs or are all UFOs alien spacecraft. The question is, are any? And the answer is yes. It's kind of like if you're looking for cancer and you're testing a whole host of drugs, uh, the question isn't, do all these drugs cure cancer? And of course, the answer is no. The question is, do any? And if the answer is yes, that's what you want if you got cancer. Don't tell me about all those that don't work. Mm -hmm. So I take, uh, I, I come from a background in which you've got to focus on the small part of stuff that's important, and radiation shielding for high-performance nuclear systems. And most isotopes aren't fissionable. Fortunately, there are a couple that are. Uh, most uh, isotopes are not good absorbers of neutrons. Fortunately, we have some few that are. And so I learned early on, absorbing 98% of the radiation which is emitted in a reactor sounds great except you killed everybody that walked by <laughs> you well you know it's what gets out that matters not sure. the fact that you go oh, i grabbed 98 percent. isn't that wonderful no it isn't i gotta grab 99.9999 percent so i have this drawn this viewpoint if you will so i was looking at enough of these cases talking to people i visited project blue book several times 
uh, way back in the 60s. Uh, and so it, it's a huge amount of data. I've talked to Ted Phillips with the physical trace cases, uh, the multiple witness radar visual cases. And the kicker is, too, that I have a background in advanced uh, technology. One of the major objections to UFOs, you can't get here from there. And those guys are still thinking about chemical rockets. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about chemical rockets. I worked on nuclear rockets. I worked on fission rockets less than seven feet in diameter, power level of 4,000 megawatts. That's twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam, seven feet in diameter. <laughs> don't tell me about chemical rockets. I worked on fusion rockets. We did a study of them. Use the right stuff in the right way and kick particles out the back end that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. And one of my battles has to do with the fact that the ancient academics and fossilized physicists seem to think that the only place that advanced research and development work gets done is at universities. That's absurd. Hmm. Uh, Well, two different people have told me, Stan, if Roswell actually happened, they'd have had to take half the physicists out of the colleges across the country to look at that. I said, you've got to be kidding. There's Los Alamos, which uh, back then had 8,000 employees, and Sandia Corporation, another nuclear weapons lab, and Lawrence Livermore, and uh, Oak Ridge, and Hanford. When we wanted to build a stealth fighter, did we go to some university and say, oh, give me four professors and 20 grad students? No, we went to Lockheed and spent $10 billion over 10 years to build a stealth aircraft. When I was working on nuclear airplanes, way back in 19, oh dear, 58, a <laughs> long time ago. Mm, I was we, in kindergarten. Well, at GE in Cincinnati, we spent $100 million that year, and that was a lot of money back then. We employed 3,500 people, and we had 1,100 of them who were engineers and scientists. And the guys in academia seemed to have no idea about any of this stuff. You want technology, you go to uh, places that can spend the money. Uh, and people also, another problem with the ancient academics is they don't seem to understand that governments, companies working for the government, can keep secrets. Uh, the, the worst example of that, and, you know, it'll sound a little strange, but bear with me. Dr. Tyson, who's head of the Hayden Planetarium, a very... Uh, charismatic kind of speaker. I've seen him on television. He has done two things that illustrate the problems we have here. One is on that Peter Jennings mockumentary of February 24, 2005, he claimed that our fastest rocket, the Voyager spacecraft, would take 70,000 years to get to the nearest star, and scientists want their data a lot more quickly than that. Uh, He neglected to mention that it doesn't have a propulsion system on it. It's been coasting since it left the (laughs) the minor detail, of course. course. And then a a few months ago at Penn State University, to a crowd of 1,800, according to the news story, he pointed out that, look, these people say, these these UFO people say that uh, the government's covering things up. The government can't cover anything up. The proof of that is, look how much we know about President Clinton's genitalia. Now think about that for a minute. What the heck does that have to do, you know, Monica Lewinsky, et cetera, mm. with uh, things like the NRO, the NSC, the NSA, the DIA, the CIA, 
These are the agents we're talking about. And, of course, Dr. Tyson isn't the only one who says such stupid things. Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute. Governments can't keep secret. He said, look, it's the same government that fouled up with FEMA about Katrina. It's the same government that operates the post office, which is going to lose umpteen billion dollars this year. What in the world has that got to do with those alphabet soup agencies? Utterly ridiculous. Don't these guys live in the real world? And my only answer is they don't. No, well, so, there is a real world. Well, you know, secrecy is a way of life under many programs. Just to give you one example, the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office, admitted about three years ago. This is in my book, uh, Flying Saucers and Science, along with a bunch of others, but I particularly like this one. They admitted that they had canceled a program they had with Boeing, looking at changing the architect or architecture, how components are arranged, of the spy satellites. They're the guys with the big ones that cost maybe half a billion dollars each, you know. They had only spent $13 billion and didn't get what they wanted. This is in secret. Governments can't keep secrets? Oh, these guys are nuts. Uh, you see what I'm saying? That there's a yeah. real world, then there's the world occupied by the ancient academics and fossilized physicists and so forth. Well, that's quite Ooh. true. We have a uh, another break coming up, and I, I might share a little bit about my own military intel experience and government secrets on this issue. In a moment, when we come back, we write back Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com, and our guest, Stanton Friedman. Stay with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries. All day long, we're devoted to your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. With your direct connect to the stars, Lisa J. Smith, The Dr. Pat Show, Liz Souza, Barbara Mackey, Glynis McCants, The Wake Up Call with L. Newman and Tom Force. Let us know how we're doing. 248-545-7685. Log on. NewSkyRadio.com. 24 hours a day. Your spiritual well-being is our concern. Awaken the extraordinary. Live the life you've imagined. Look up to the sky. CBS Radio's The New Sky. NewSkyRadio.com. New horizons, no boundaries. was a man back in 95 Whose heart ran out of summers But before he died I asked him, wait, what's the sense in life? Come over me, come over me He said, son, why you gotta sing that tune? Catch a Dylan song or some eclipse of the moon Let an angel swing and make you swoon Then you will see
CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal. With Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. And we're here with our very fine guest and our uh, good friend Stanton Friedman, UFO legend. And I wanted to uh, just get his thought on, on one one thing that occurred that happened to me. And I know uh, that, Stan, you have a very low opinion of SETI the uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But way back in the day when I was uh, doing some in, intel work in the military, there, you're right, the government really cannot keep a secret. What they do is hand out distractions and false information and all, just to keep everybody confused. And one thing that I heard in the – there is a certain intel grapevine – that one sometimes hears. I heard about Area 51. This is business 30 years ago. And I also heard that when SETI first came online, from day one, they were inundated with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of signals, which were interpreted as well, man-made, but made by somebody. Had you ever heard anything like that? I found this, this grapevine to be relatively accurate in many ways. I well, mean, have you ever heard anything yeah. like that? The, the the real kicker here is the powers that be in SETI in the early days, it didn't take them too long to recognize that, jeez, the government's got satellites up there putting out all kinds of signals. we got to be really careful. So they stubbed their toes a couple of times, were ready to make a big deal about signals, which it turned out uh, you know, were from orbiting satellites, for example. And so there was a, a great deal. Uh, the SETI people hadn't been fully aware of how much, uh, what do I call it, uh, the satellite world existed and all the, the spy satellites and all the other stuff, you know, the, the NSA kind of guys, the NRO kind of guys. And that's a whole different world from SETI. In other words, you don't find those guys publishing in the open scientific literature. They don't put out lists of, if you get this frequency, you know, it's our signals and so forth. There's a reason for that, of course, because you don't want to tell the Russians what you're doing. And, and as soon as you tell people all the signals you're putting out, what frequencies there are and all that, I mean, they may find out eventually. But still, there was a, a legitimate reason for keeping those secrets. And, well, uh, I'll give you a specific example. Remember the U-2 flights over Russia? We were very anxious to find out what their military capabilities were. And, of course, one got shot down, and there's a whole big uh, international furor about that. 
the first successful spy satellite was the Corona for the United States was the Corona spy satellite, which was launched in 1960. Now it goes around and around and around. So that first launch got more data than all the U-2 flights that had preceded it about where Russians had air bases and all kinds of stuff. Now, it was a kind of a crude system. They actually sent the, uh, the film back to Earth to be caught by airplanes. Anyway, it was secret, really secret. The first public discussion, and remember that the first successful one came after 12 failures, all of them in secret, uh, the first public discussion about the Corona spy satellite was 1995. The first one successful was 1960. But there were a whole bunch of others in between. And so we weren't talking about those things. I mean, the Russians knew we had spy satellites, of course, but uh, we weren't giving out information, and the Americans didn't know. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that early on there were guys who picked up signals and if there were ever a guy I'd like to really check on, it would be Frank Drake, because he got his degree in electrical engineering. Then he went into the Navy for three years and worked on electric, electronic countermeasures, which means he had to have a very high security clearance because he had to know what our signals were and what the Russian frequencies were and all this kind of stuff. After he got out, he stayed in the reserve for at least 10 more years, and he went to Harvard and became the first guy to get a degree in radio astronomy, basically. But while he was in the reserve, the head of the uh, Cambridge Unit Number 1 was Donald Menzel, Commander Donald Menzel, member of MJ-12, astronomer, and so forth. So the question is, since the Navy loves to make use of professionals all summer long, you know, and they can get access without having to hire them, you know, full-time. Uh, I would love to know what Frank Drake knows. Mm. Uh, and uh, he's not about to tell me, I would say. <laughs> <Wouldn't> <laughs> or anybody else either. But So what, what I'm saying is this. There's a whole world out there on which enormous amounts of money have been spent compared to civilian efforts along these lines. And where there were signals produced all over the place by not only our the satellites, but enemy satellites, and we don't want them to know how much we can interpret. See, the problem isn't just that you got a signal, but you got to sort out the information from it. And you guys know that with digital signals, if you pick them up, you need the key. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just noise. Yeah. So there's Very a whole yeah. yeah, there's a whole counterintelligence world out there. We would sure like to know what they know. They want to know what we know. And there's loads of satellites out there and loads of signals, and a lot of that is classified systems with classified techniques. And so I'm sure there was some embarrassment early on that, mm -hmm. uh, hey, we got it, the big signal. Uh, yeah. Wait a minute, maybe we better check. Uh, damn, it's one of ours. <laughs> yeah, that's very possible. I wanted to get into this. Uh, now, off the air earlier today, we were talking about, uh, I won't give her name because she didn't say that we could, but a uh, well-known physiologist from a prominent university who uh, wanted to ask you some, uh, ask us some questions, and obviously you're far more qualified than we are. I'm just going to throw them at you. Do you know if any university presses have published books on UFOs? 
Yes. We, we, I know right off the top of my head of at least three. Uh, one was Dr. David Jacobs' book, The UFO Controversy in America, yeah, he's been a which guest. is a modification of his Ph.D. thesis. It was about 1970 or so. Indiana University Press published that. That was the first one, I'm told, by an academic press. Uh, a second book was the one that resulted from the American uh, Association for the Advancement of Science had hearings in Boston at their annual meeting at which they had testimony from about a dozen people, a sort of a debate about UFOs, and that included Jim McDonald and including Donald Menzel. And the proceeding, uh, Carl Sagan was, uh, well, the, the chief uh, honcho on the thing. And uh, incidentally, uh, Edward Condon didn't want it to be taking place because we don't want to discuss stuff like this at our meetings, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Cornell University Press published the book, The UFO Debates, and it was edited by Carl and uh, Thornton Page from Wesleyan University, another astronomer. Uh, a third book that I'm aware of is one about UFO abductions. It has papers from maybe a dozen people, including Don Dondery of McGill University and Dave Jacobs and Bud Hopkins and a whole bunch of people by, I want to say, University of Kansas Press. Uh, and anybody who wants to contact me, I'll, I'll dig out the reference. You can get it from uh, uh, Amazon.com, I'm sure, because I can't recall whether it's Kansas State University Press or University of Kansas. I've got to find the book, and I haven't had time since I got okay. home. Yeah. But th that was excellent. Uh, some of those papers are very good. And I particularly liked uh, Don Dondery, who was a professor of psychology at McGill University. Uh, now, there's another side to this, and that is that a number of universities have had courses taught for credit, mind you, about UFOs. Dave Jacobs has taught one at Temple University for more than 20 years. I think he's retired right now. But... Uh, and, I uh, spoke at Long Beach State University, and Al Lawson taught a course then uh, on UFOs, uh, Dr. Al Lawson, okay. uh, University of North oh. Dakota. We have to take another break. I'm sorry. Yep. We'll be right back right. behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com, with our guest Stanton Friedman. Stick around. we got more coming up.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. And we're back with our guest, Stanton Friedman, UFO legend. And Stan, I wanted to get to this before we ran out of time, and that is the uh, upcoming on Labor Day weekend, U.S. Labor Day weekend, the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire. Of course, this one being the third annual event and marking the 50th anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction incidents. And uh, next week, we're going to have Kathleen Marden as a guest to talk about that. But Stan, uh, you're going to be there, so will we. And what are you going to be talking about at the at the festival? Well, I'm going to be talking about primarily um, because of the timing and because three weeks later we're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Hill case with a dedication of an official state monument. Uh, you know, uh, that Kathy had to go through hoops to answer all her questions about yeah. uh, just a few weeks later up in uh, Lincoln near where the event took place. I'll be focusing on the star map that Betty saw and that I was chosen to ask to help Marjorie Fish out with what she was doing to try to make sense out of that star map and talk about the results. And the kicker is it gives us a means for evaluating the context. Uh, and I just gave a paper at the MUFON conference in which I talked about that it's time to get away from the Copernican view of things. You remember Nicolaus Copernicus, well, I don't oh, yes. personally, of course. Not personally, but, uh, no. In 1543, he wrote a book in which he had the gall to suggest that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe. The general consensus was that all the other planets and the sun all moved around the Earth. Now, he died the year the book was published, and so the book was banned by the Church for 300 years, and Giordano Bruno got uh, burned at the stake for agreeing with him. And now we suddenly have a recognition of gee, that's not the way the universe is. <clears throat> a lot of people may not realize we didn't know there was more than one galaxy until the early 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we have a whole new concept. And what this hill map does, I was the first to publish an article about it in Saga magazine, long gone, but, and I instigated the article that was done in uh, Astronomy magazine by Terrence Dickinson. Uh, <clears throat> got more response than anything they'd ever published is back in the early 70s. The kicker is here we have the base stars in this map. I'll go through how we got there, but uh, tonight at least, here we have the base stars are Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. It's a constellation of reticulum. It's 39.3 light years away. You can't see them from here. You've got to go below the equator. Now, here's the kicker. These two stars just happen to be the closest to each other pair of sun-like stars. Maybe 5 or 10% of the stars are sun-like. Uh, not too big, not too small, not too old, not too new, not varying in their energy output, a whole other bunch of criteria, like the sun. Uh, and these two stars are not only the closest to each other pair of sun-like stars, they're an eighth of a light year apart. Wow. That means they're more than 30 times closer than the sun is to the next star, out, uh, Alpha Centauri. So we're out in the boonies. Uh, mm -hmm. Zeta reticulans got next-door neighbors from a planet around one. The other one's visible all day long. Real easy to pick up planets around the other star. So planets and, have been uh, discovered around these stars? Not yet. Not oh. yet. Kepler can't look at these. They're in the wrong direction. Uh, 
The kicker, though, is these two stars are about a billion years older than the sun. So if you combine those two facts, that they've been around a long time and they've got next-door neighbors, whichever one gets started first, you'd expect them to develop interstellar travel pretty quickly. You know, the neighbor is only an eighth of a light year apart, no big deal. So it gives us an entirely different concept of what happens in a civilization that started out much earlier than we did, and where we got neighbors around. You develop colonization, migration. You know, people would travel for their honeymoon over to the other place. Yeah. Uh, it changes the perspective entirely. And well, so... I- I'd let let some go this, but we're running out of time. And I just, as always, especially with Stan, we have a hundred thousand questions we're just not going to get to tonight. But thank you, Stan. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your books and your website. Okay. Well, the website is very easy: www.stantonfriedman. That's F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N dot com, and it lists all my books: uh, Top Secret Magic about the MJ-12 documents, some of which I think are genuine, most of which are phony. I don't care about the phony ones. Uh, Flying Saucers in Science, 2008, which looks at the question of can you get here from there? What are these large-scale scientific studies? What's wrong with the SETI cultists, etc.? Captured is listed there. Uh, Kathleen did most of the work, 85% to be precise. Mm -hmm. Our book, Science Was Wrong... Uh, which we have, we each did half of that one. Fourteen instances of smart people saying very stupid things, which have <laughs> consequences. And it's time for another one. I mean, there are so many other examples. You know? Exactly. And my book, Crash at Corona, uh, my first book, and it's about the Roswell incident. And so we, I also have things on there that you can't get anyplace else like Project Blue Book Special Report 14, the biggest study ever done. Mm-hmm. It's available there. I've got DVDs, uh, a new book, UFOs and Aliens, for which I wrote two articles. Kathy wrote one, and there are ten others. That just came out a couple months ago. Uh, and other DVDs, UFOs are real, and there's a debate. Are flying saucers real? An official fancy debate at Middle Tennessee State University between myself and James McGaha. The Air Force pilot who says, ain't nothing to fly in saucers, folks. Mm-hmm. He's wrong. <laughs> oh, and so this is a place to, to, oh, also recollections of Roswell. First-hand testimony from 27 Roswell witnesses, almost all of whom are now deceased. <coughs> that, that, that's amazing. Well, I, I'm afraid we're done. Uh, thank you so much, Stan, for joining us tonight, and we'll see you in Exeter, Labor Day weekend. And all benefit, all uh, proceeds from that event go to children's charities in that, that area, everyone. So please come and see uh, Stan Friedman and Kathleen Martin and us at the Exeter Festival. Stan, thanks a lot. We'll see you there. My pleasure. See you there. Okay. Guten Tag. So many thanks to our producer, Will Kosnick, and we'll see you next Sunday, August 21st, right here on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com. Ben and I will host an open line show with our ubiquitous stack of ever-growing emails. In the meantime, tune into our New England Drive Time show on WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com at 6 p.m. Eastern uh, every time on Monday, or 6 p.m. Eastern time every Monday. And remember, you can always get free podcasts of all our shows along with show schedules and guest information at www.behindtheparanormal.com. And we leave you this evening with a word from that dear old French philosopher Albert Camus. Life is the sum of all your choices, unquote. 
So thanks for being with us on our Greek Cosmic Journey, and we will see you next time.